Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, Woman in the Wilderness, featuring Miriam Lancewood, was chaired by Jinty McTavish and presented by NHNZ. Enjoy. Ki te e hui hui nei, tina koutou. Ka nui te kite kite. Ia koutou, nō reira, tina koutou, tina koutou, tina koutou katoa. Wow. Um, <laughs> my name's Jinti, um, and um, it's my pleasure and responsibility to steer this waka this afternoon. Um, and I guess first off the block, um, I'd really like to extend a very warm welcome to Miriam Lancewood, who has joined us all the way from Nelson um, today. Um, so if we could just another round of applause for Miriam. <laughs> And what a super turnout on um, a pretty miserable Dunedin day out there. So thanks everyone for for coming out for this conversation about our wild places. And um, I don't know if that's what drew you guys here today, but it's certainly what drew me to this book um, and to this author. I think we're so lucky in New Zealand to have such wonderful wild places and Sometimes it takes um, our wonderful new residents um, to point out to us how lucky we are. Um, so very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that this afternoon, Miriam. Yeah. First of all, a, a huge mihi to uh, NHNZ Limited, um, who uh, sponsored this evening's or this afternoon's session. Um, so a big thanks to NHNZ. By way of a brief introduction of Miriam, and I'm sure Miriam will give us a much better overview, um, but uh, Miriam Lancewood um, is originally from the Netherlands, yep. um, Dutch, of Dutch origin, and Women in the Wilderness is billed as a story of survival, love, and self-discovery. And indeed, it is all of those things, but I think in a much more subtle way than perhaps this, the, the, the subtitle suggests. Miriam describes in, in the book um, what was then six years living in New Zealand's wilderness, yeah. Great. Um, with her partner, um, uh, uh, who was a Kiwi, um, uh, Peter, uh, where they eked out an existence in some of the perhaps lesser known and uh, less, certainly less habited corners of Aotearoa. Uh, far from a survival story in the sense of uh, chronicles of heroic arts, acts of self-preservation, um, I found this a much, a much more transfixing story of everyday experience and meetings with everyday New Zealanders. It documents the highs and lows of a life in and with nature and observes some of the changes that nature renders to human nature by its touch. And I think that's the real magic. Um, It's a book that is refreshing in its honesty. It's a deeply honest book. Um, and absorbing um, as much for the energy and the vibrancy and the curiosity of the author um, as for its content. So I've read it twice. I thoroughly endorse the book, um, but we'll be delving into some of its 
secrets and, um, and perhaps some of its themes, exploring some of the themes more broadly this afternoon. Uh, we, we really welcome you to all dream up some questions for Miriam and there will be an opportunity at the end of the session for us to, to, to hear, hear some of those and hear Miriam's responses to them. Yep. Miriam, is Miriam Lance with your real name? Of <laughs> course <laughs> <begin> not. With? <laughs> because it's Lance, Lance with it's... I mean, it's it's sounds so very Kiwi, doesn't it? It sounds so Kiwi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, New Zealanders would know straight away that that would not be my real name. <laughs> <laughs> no, my name in Dutch you would never remember. It wouldn't sort of stick. A Lancewood is also, you know, Lancewood, sort of unconsciously you think of something primitive. So I thought it would be a good name. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and amazing how if you think, if you think up a name like that, how it almost becomes your real name. I can believe that. And was your staff a Lancewood staff? The, the um, stick that you no, carried? No, it was Manukai. It was Manukai. I wouldn't okay. be good if I was Manukai. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're too honest for that. <laughs> so I, I wonder whether there are other elements of this book that aren't perhaps coincidence, but I'm sure... Oh, the rest is really yeah. honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miriam, shall we start, start at the beginning? How did a, a young Dutch woman find herself on the other side of the planet, deciding to embark on a journey into New Zealand's wilderness with a man 30 years her senior. Yes, so it all starts with a man 30 years my senior, called Peter, in India. So I was travelling on my own in India um, for five months, and then I met him. And um, he's a Kiwi. He uh, worked in Massey University as a lecturer there and gave up his job and um, sold everything, and one little backpack, only this big, not even a big, um, huge backpack, not all that, uh, he went to India to live. And I never heard a story like that, that someone just gives up like that and, and live already. When I met him, he lived there already for more than five years, just traveling around, surfing in the sea, walking the Himalayas in the, in the, in the summer season, so he went with the seasons. And I thought it was absolutely remarkable. <laughs> and um, so we did this journey together in the Himalayas. It's an amazing journey. And, um, well, you know, because of the age difference, I thought, you know, we're just going to travel together and see where, you know, whenever I go on my own way again. But that never happens. And maybe because of the, um, the age difference, we never took each other for granted. And we always thought, you know, this is going to be a short-term relationship and that's now 13 years ago. And so um, maybe that's the key for a good relationship. <laughs> <laughs> to never sort of um, bind yourself together forever and ever. Who knows? And so Peter said, Miriam, I've got this wonderful country called New Zealand that you must see. Is that how you wound up back here? Yeah, yes, I've been walking in the, in, in the Himalayas. And he kept constantly saying, oh, New Zealand. It's actually just like this, just a little bit. Uh, lower and you wouldn't have the, the altitude problems and actually you could drink the water in New Zealand unlike here and actually you wouldn't have so many people in New Zealand you're always talking about New Zealand and so I thought this must be a wonderful country and it is and yeah. so you wound up at wonderful country yes wonderful wilderness even more so perhaps yeah. but you didn't jump immediately into the wilderness when you got here did you you, you started working Oh, well, yeah, I had to, um, for residency reasons. <laughs> so um, I could come into the country. Luckily, I had studied physical education teacher. 
So I had a teaching degree and it just so happened that uh, teaching was on the long-term shortest list. And so um, I got in very easily. I had to work for one year as a teacher and they thought I will work forever <laughs> uh, and not so. And when I had my residency, then I uh, resigned. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that lasted actually not even a year, 10 months. And so you knew, yeah. you knew when you came here that you wanted to head into the wilderness immediately? Or mm, not quite. We always had adventurous ideas. So Peter was always saying, you've got to live differently. You know, not, ju- not the same, not, you know, not this mediocre lifestyle. We've got to think of something different. And um, then we thought, okay, um, well, we'd love to live in the wilderness. And actually, we saw in the Himalayas the sadhus. And sadhus have absolutely nothing, just an orange piece of cloth. And they walk in the mountains, and uh, they become enlightened. <laughs> and so we thought that would be a really good idea. And um, live like them. Of course, you have to be really organized in New Zealand, otherwise you die. Um, there's no um, society. And the sadhus in India, they go around and people give a lot of food because there are people there and in villages and that. Um, so totally different situation. But nevertheless, I was attracted by this idea of having very little possessions, the less the better, um, and live in nature and see what those mountains do with your mind. Uh, would it transform your mind? That was our ultimate question. And did it? Well, in the beginning we thought, well, nothing happens. <laughs> well, let's think of something different. <laughs> well, let's start there, Miriam. Let's start there because I think that's one of the remarkable things, isn't it, about deciding to head into the, into the wilderness. You, have to, you spend so much time thinking about how to resign and you, you talk about documenting every tea bag that you're going to need for your three months in the wilderness mm-hmm. and you rush to sell all your possessions or give them away and you organise your life to the nth degree and then suddenly you end up in the wilderness. And there's nothing to do. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, there's a lot of preparation, indeed. And then we come the first day in those fantastic mountains and rivers and this constant roar of the river and, and rocks and um, snow even on the tops. And think, this is absolutely brilliant. Aren't we lucky? Yeah, we're so lucky that we are here. And then the next day, you think, oh, God, what am I going to do? <laughs> there's absolutely nothing to do. Especially, well, we took a little bit of, we took food in there with us this, this first, the first winter. Um, and there wasn't any need to go hunting straight away. We had already some firewood cut. Our friend helped us with that. There was nothing to do. And so that was the greatest shock to, um, no, there you are, nicest place in the world. And then what? And you talk about actually realizing you had a fear of doing nothing. Yeah, so Peter, is very, I'm very lucky with Peter, he's so wise and experienced. He said, right, you need to learn the art of doing nothing. And he had learned that in India. <laughs> and so uh, that came in handy for him. Um, because I, of course, did all these chores and start cleaning and organizing and, and doing all these things that didn't need to be doing. Um, and he said, calm down now, calm down. Uh, so you go through this period of restlessness and boredom before your mind starts to slow down. And I had to find all this out. I didn't know. I thought, for all I knew, I was going to be restless and bored, you know, for the whole year. Because we set off to live in the wilderness for one year to start with. We didn't know it's going to be nine. 
And you talk about, I think, the, the beautiful phrase that you use to describe getting used to doing nothing is discarding the invisible whip. And it's quite oh, a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it, to live in time. Because if you think about it, we live so much in time. We always sort of know what we're going to do next. Now you're going to be here in this session, right? You already got an idea what you're going to do after that and maybe tonight. And everything is already planned, right? So we get sort of pushed along with, the, with this time thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's like a whip in a way. I was also growing up in Holland, always going fast. Even if I could walk, I would run. <laughs> <laughs> And so do you have any tips or tricks about how you got to the point that you were okay with doing nothing? Um, it just takes time, actually. <laughs> just, you have to be there uh, two weeks, I would say, and then the restlessness and the boredom would slowly sort of ebb away. You know, and then what dissolve. happens? Then you'll find yourself quite happily just sipping tea and looking at the scenery. And you start yeah. noticing things differently. You talk in the book about noticing things. Yeah, so after some time, and I'll talk here about a year or so especially, the, um, my senses became much better. So also because of hunting, my eyesight became way better. I could see him further in the distances. I could um, see... I really hunt hairs on colour alone. Because if you see a hair running, you're too late. They're really <laughs> fast. So I need to see, all, among all that brown and green, I need to see something particular color brown. And then I know, hey, that could be a hair. Hmm. Not only that, also the hearing, of course. Uh, I need to, especially goats, they call out. And they, uh, you can hear them if you listen. Um, but I found out that if you um, think too loud, think is too much of a noise. <laughs> So if you think, you can't hear properly. So you automatically, you start to start thinking a little bit less. And uh, that's a very um, big advantage for hunting. Mm. And then um, you develop a sense of intuition. Because if you don't know, if you have no feeling of where the animals are, uh, you can walk for days without seeing anything. Yeah, so all these senses that I believe that are embedded in us, it's in us, it's in our blood. You know, our ancestors survived like this. Um, you don't really need to learn that. If you, all of you, get put into the wilderness after some time, that will develop by itself. Yeah. Hunting was a big change for you from, from your previous life as a vegetarian, I think. Yeah, so I grew up vegetarian. My mother never cooked meat. And then we had this idea of living in the wilderness. <laughs> and then I thought, well, great, I'm going to do a uh, bow and arrow. <laughs> Because uh, Robin Hood always was my hero. <laughs> so um, that, that's just so cool to, uh, to shoot the bow and arrow. And so I bought a bow and uh, while I was working. And in the backyard, I put up a target. And um, I practiced. And it is a traditional recurve um, takedown bow. So that means it's intuitive. So you have no idea where you're shooting. <laughs> And um, so I practiced, you know, do the same thing uh, on the same target, 20 meters, which is fine. After some time, you will hit the target. But of course, if you go hunting, it's not 20 meters. It's up or down. Uh, it's a moving target. It's totally different. So I found that incredibly difficult. Mm. Uh, but you um, steering here towards the emotional thing, it's really difficult to... Um, 
fully realize that there's a beautiful animal there, and you're going to kill it and eat it. This is very confronting. But I thought, okay, um, if you buy meat in the supermarket, someone else does it for you. And um, presumably the um, animals here had a much better life. And also, the situa ecological situation here in New Zealand is that those animals are classed as pests. And so, in, in some ways, you do the country a favour with um, uh, keeping the numbers down. That's some sort of reasoning. But uh, vegans, they don't listen to that part. Um, but yes, it's very strange to uh, see something living and then it's dead. And you, it makes you wonder, what is life? And how quickly it can be gone gone, and um, would it be the same for us? Mm. You know, one accident, we would also be uh, dead meat. I yeah. think one of the things that I, um, uh, I, f I found quite interesting in your book is the way that you talked about meat essentially as a necessity for living through that first winter. You talked oh, about yeah. getting so cold eating lentils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then that first yeah. horrific experience of, of having to kill a possum and how emotionally difficult that was for you, but how warm you felt yeah, that yeah, night. That's right. Yeah. So we set off, because I stopped working for residency reasons um, in autumn, so we basically went into the wilderness in the beginning of winter. And um, that was quite a challenge. We were a thousand meters high in um, South Marlborough and in a tent, and we got colder and colder and colder. And um, this was quite a serious situation because in the morning we would wake up with hunger pains because um, it takes so much energy to uh, keep warm during the night. And especially Peter being used to eating meat, he came from a sheep farm originally, <laughs> Um, he was suffering really quite badly and even lost his appetite, mm. strangely enough. <laughs> I mean, we had enough lentils and rice. Um, and so I put in more effort to um, trap a possum. And when we finally got that meat, um, that was the first night that we were warm. And we, in the morning, we didn't wake up with hunger pains. Yeah, so we needed those calories, and especially possum, I must say. Um, <laughs> possum... Eels and I think goose have per kilo of weight so much more calories than, say, venison and rabbits in it. I think for any Kiwi, the idea of eating a possum takes some getting used to, and I'm not quite sure why. Oh, it's very good meat. G tell us more. What does it taste like? Um, yeah, so I, I brought up vegetarian, and so I never tasted meat. So when I ate a possum, I thought, well, you know, this is what it tastes like. <laughs> so um, so I, I'm quite used to, straight away from the beginning, used to that wild meat, that gamey taste, I guess. Um, but possum might smell strong, but it doesn't taste so strong. Yeah, right. Uh, very fatty. It's just very nice. You just need to cook it a long time. So we put it on the fire for hours and hours, and then the meat falls off the bone, and then we can fry it up and eat it. But really it's nice. Something to add to the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be surprised. <laughs> but it wasn't just wasn't just possum, was it? You went on to hunt goats, um, and then later you would learn how to how to shoot. Can you talk with us, a rifle? With a rifle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, it took me a long time to master the bow hunting. That is really extremely difficult. Uh, first of all, because I'm a bow with intuitive hunting, <laughs> that you don't know where you're shooting. Um, 
but also uh, the arrows are so expensive and um, you inflict quite a lot of suffering on the animal because mm. they don't die often straight away. I found that the hardest part. Mm. Um, so after two years, I switched to a rifle, um, quite a simple version of a rifle. Um, and I saw the hunting became so much more easy. Mm. And yeah. not just easier, right? It was also more humane, you yeah. felt, Yeah, for the much animal. more humane. Yeah. 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 So there wasn't the only big change. You, you also had suddenly just the two of you in the wilderness. You, you, you lost your daily contact with your students and your, your other uh, teachers that you were working with. Um, yep. You suddenly had no way of contacting your family in, back in the, in the Netherlands and yep. your sister, I think, who you were very close with. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little about how you managed being alone with Peter um, for your sole point of contact for, for the majority of the time and, and also how you manage to keep in contact with your family. Yeah, yeah it's quite, um, it becomes very intense. So you're <laughs> 24-7 together. And um, if you don't have an idea of you're going to learn about yourself through relationship, it would be quite uh, conflictual. <laughs> so uh, Peter would say something like, you are very such and such. And if I would start defend myself, it would be an endless um, uh, conflict, right? So we use um, this relationship to um, discover ourselves and to um, to look at our conditioning. And he said, "You are so uh, loud, for instance." <laughs> and uh, you know that might be very well a Dutch thing. <laughs> so I look at the my my Dutch conditioning, and um, that's how we help each other. Mm. And, um, yeah, a lot of these things, uh, we, we can talk about that quite, mm. quite well. So I think that's really important. Um, and you managed to find some sense of balance because it seems to me that Peter, through the book, there's quite a, um, a theme of him sharing his knowledge, sharing his 30-plus years of knowledge um, over and above your, your knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and yet you're the more physically able of, of the partnership, and so you contribute in other ways. C- can you talk yeah, us yeah. through that balance? Yeah, so it's quite that well balanced that way. Um, yeah, so he is he's obviously much more intelligent and knowledgeable than that, but I know from myself that I am uh, much stronger than he is. So um, whenever something needs to be uh, done, uh, uh, carried uh, wood or something, a big trunk from the, from the river down below, carried back up, he calls me. <laughs> so... <laughs> So our roles are really reversed. Like I'm the hunter, he's the cook. And uh, it is great to reverse that and have no competition with each other. I think a lot of um, uh, conflict between people is competition. Mm. Um, you don't really want to be the same. You don't want to be equal in every way. Yeah, so I guess the difference between us makes it work. It strikes me that a lot of, a lot of what is so great about this book comes from your curiosity and your ability to kind of step back and say, yep, I'm, I'm interested in this and I want to know more. And I'm, I'm not too worried about being told about it because I want to know more. Does that come from your family? Is that a family trait or is that something that comes through your Steiner education? Or is it, where does it come from, this infinite curiosity and this desire to... to oh, I'm not really aware of this. <laughs> uh, nice of you to say that. Um, I think Peter is always hammering on it. Yeah, okay. Um, you should be curious, learn about everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I guess, you know, there's a lot of space out there in the mountains. And um, 
that in, in your psychological problems or worries seem, seem even way less. And they, they seem to dissolve by themselves. And in that place comes space in your mind. So um, you see things very clearly. And a lot of things don't seem so very rational anymore. Other things seem very logical. Um, and with that also comes curiosity. So if I go out in the city, uh, if I hitchhike, for instance, to the nearest shop, of course I'm going to learn all about the person next to me, um, what he has to tell. There must be a story there, you know. So I ask, and um, I learn so much, and this is so enjoyable. So I guess it comes with the combination of living in the wilderness and automatic side effect is curiosity. One of the things that I found fascinating was, you know, when you write, you write this book and I don't know how long it was, six years later, you're, you're, you're writing very detailed explanations of your, of your conversations with these people that you meet in the wilderness. And I wonder, Miriam, how did you manage to remember all of that? <laughs> yeah, uh, that is because not that much is happening. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of time out there and then a hunter would come to our camp well, this is an event. <laughs> and so I know, still know everything about this hunter and um, what he said about his relationship and about it, the missus, as they call <laughs> their wives, and the children. And they're very honest about it. It's really interesting conversations. Also because they don't have their telephone with them and they've got all the time in the world and we stand around the fire. And So I remember these conversations really well. But I also written them down. You mentioned... Um, communication with my family. Mm. So I wrote letters, endless letters, pages and pages. And then when we meet a hunter, I'll quickly put it in the envelope and the stamps are already on it and ask him to um, give it, I mean, um, post it. Mm. And so my parents would open the letter and they smell smoke. <laughs> because everything, my hair included, everything smells of smoke. From the campfire, you know, it takes about take about three washes to get this out. I think one of the things about those letters to your family is, you know, you're quite prolific with them, aren't you? And you, you write a lot. And yeah. through the book, there are extracts of these letters. Um, Sophie, I think, is your sister. Yeah, yeah, Dear yeah. Sophie. And yeah. she'll tell a story about a, a leaf falling to the ground and take a whole page to tell the story. And I, <laughs> I wondered, you know, Miriam, we never hear back from Sophie about what she thinks about that. <laughs> <laughs> did you how, did you ever get letters back again? Did you no, ever get where should she send them to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, she would write an email back, and then I would uh, I would go to the library, find uh, a computer because it's the only place where you can find computers, and um, then I would open up my inbox, and then mm. emails come, but it's less romantic than letters. <laughs> <laughs> Far less romantic and less smoke, I think. Yeah. <laughs> One hopes. <laughs> I'm interested in some of the key themes that run through this book, and one of them seems to be that the, the balance between security in life and freedom. And I, one of the phrases which stuck out to me um, in the book is where you reflect on this and you talk about fear being the wall between security and freedom. Can you tell us a little about how your time in the wilderness has um, brought you to think about the securities that we have in, in everyday life in 2019 and 
how, how, that, how your, your perspectives on that have shifted through your time in the wilderness. Yeah. So, of course, my security is Peter. <laughs> and um, then I thought, well, if I am dependent on Peter being there, then automatically there will be a fear of him not being there. Mm. So dependency breeds fear. But if I push through that, then I'll be free of it. So there will be freedom, right? Um, so I thought, okay, I'm very happy with Peter here right next to me, uh, with the fire, with the tent, we've got everything we need, and we've got plenty of food, all that. Now what happens if I go, have to go on my own? <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd better practice with this and go, uh, go off on my own for a week or so and see how I go. And I see myself this all this um, discomfort. And I think, well, how strange. <laughs> um, but of course, I have to go through I have to practice with mm-hmm. this, to do things on my own. And I did that first in an afternoon. I mean, I can do something on my own, of course, here in the city. Um, but it's quite different to walk off in the mountains and further and further and further on your own into terrain where no one has been for maybe a year because of the weather conditions or whatever. Uh, or maybe never. Of course, when I first set off, I just followed a, a track. Um, but later on, I went on terrain where there was no track and nothing at all. And I don't know what it is. Maybe the altitude, just the fact that there's no humans there, but there is a different kind of atmosphere mm. when it's just you. And that affects your rationality. <laughs> And this is really strange. I'd like to investigate this more. <laughs> How exactly this works? As though we create with humans or put all the bodies together and you create rationality. Something like that. Mm. And if you move far away from them physically, just physically, something happens with rationality. And so in some ways, you let go two securities in your time in the wilderness, you let go your securities of everyday life, of being busy, and you, f- you went through the fear of doing nothing, and you came to peace with doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you had a fear of, of being alone, and you pushed through that by going on missions into the bush with a gun and nothing else, and no yeah. Peter, and, and you came to peace with, with being alone. Yeah. Are you fearful of anything else? And are you, are you going to challenge, it, challenge that fear in the same way? Um, yeah, because of the age difference. Um, Peter is now 65, I'm 35. So one day, uh, he will be there no more. And I'm really curious to see how I will, how I will be, how I will deal with that. That would, of course, be the, the main challenge in my entire life. Mm. Um, but apart from that, I find I, a lot of things that I used to be afraid of, like public speaking, for instance, um, now I think, well, you know, you're not going to eat me up. Um, <laughs> what is there to be afraid of? There is no, I'm, not, I'm not in danger of my life in the wilderness. You know, I have to be careful. River crossing, I can fall off the mountain. You know, those things are real. Um, all these psychological fears, fear of failure. You know, what is going to fail? Uh, my expectations, my ego, you know, what is actually happening with fear of failure? And so these psychological fears have um, diminished greatly. Mm. And even I spoke in Melbourne for 1,400 people. I had to speak for 20 minutes. And uh, that went all right. Mm. And I thought, well, 
You know, this is actually amazing. Well, let's do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Another key theme that runs through the book is this concept of wilderness. Um, Wilderness is is something of intrinsic and infinite interest. Um, The fact that you go into the bush and you you talk about um, wilderness looking like chaos, but actually it has its own natural order. You talk about the fact that, you know, when you go walking through the wilderness, you start seeing detail and seeing beauty and things that, um, you know, you, you just don't, you don't pay any attention to in, in everyday life. Um, can you talk a little about, uh, I, I guess I'm, this interests me because I think the everyday sense or feeling that we have of a rich life is something that's packed with experiences. You know, to have a rich life, you, you need to have new ideas, you have, need to have new new concepts, new, new activities all the time. And yet your experience, you, you, at some point in the book, you reflect on your experience and you say, oh, gee, if I have a life in the wilderness, I will have a very long life. And I wondered <laughs> what you meant by that. Do you mean, well, oh, gee, this is going to be exceptionally boring? I don't think so. I think Miriam Lancewood is saying this life is going to be very full, very rich. Yeah, indeed. So time seems to slow down completely. And so um, one year in the wilderness feels like a lifetime. Um, and it's endless. Whereas my year, actually 10 months in uh, working in Blenheim, went really fast. And I think people experience that too with working. You know, life um, flies by. But that is your life. You know, in the end of it, you think, oh, that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're 90, if you're lucky, uh, get that old, um, then life is gone. So um, yeah, the opposite happens in the wilderness when everything slows down and, um, and you feel, wow, you're li- living fully. It is such a full life, so 100%, that you actually there's no space to miss anything because <laughs> it's so full, right? <laughs> and um, I never missed anything. Um, I still don't. No, the contact with my family or other friends or this just so, so full. Yeah, it's difficult to explain. But um. One of my favourite um, phrases in the book is, a lot of people save money for later, but by the time they have enough to do something different, they don't have the courage for it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you need courage to, um, to step into the unknown. And, um, of course, the, the unknown is, and again, that door is that fear. So um, you need to overcome those fears to do something different. Yeah, and, but that different could be, you don't, you don't have to live in the wilderness, of course, you can do anything. But for that, you have to um, overcome something. And also, if you want to do something different, you are going to disappoint somebody. Because your family and friends who love you the most have an idea what you're doing. And they don't want you to go away. They don't want you to live on the other side of the world or be out of, um, out of touch and not be on your email or WhatsApp and all these things. And so it's most difficult to say, to disappoint those very people who love you. Mm. And I found that with my family, who I love the most, I had to tell them, look, I'm going to live in New Zealand with this man, older. Um, and uh, they're the same age, my parents and Peter. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was the most difficult bit. <laughs> and um, I won't be in touch. And you don't know if I live or die. And then, of course, my mum get very upset, you know, get very worried. And then I said, oh, sorry, but I'm still going to do it. I want to talk a little bit about um, 
the way that you perceive your relationship with New Zealand's wilderness, because obviously as an immigrant, these are all new ecosystems to you. Then, mm-hmm. then you, and so you see an ecosystem for the first time, and perhaps it's changed radically since since um, humans first arrived here. But to you, it's new and it's fresh and it's New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, you talk about meeting people that are working with with native species, and you talk about them as conservationists. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that that's not how you describe yourself. And I'm, I'm interested in how you would describe your relationship with New Zealand's nature. Um, what is, what is your, your own description of yourself? Are you an adventurer? Are you a, what are you, Miriam? What are you in relation to this wilderness? Oh, oh I don't really know. <laughs> but we, the, we, the saw, we saw um, different people, the, the tourists, say, who come for the nice scenery and take a lot of pictures and that. And then they go home. And then the conservationists who do research and observe that. But both of them are observers. They're not part of it. They come to visit nature and they do either research or take pictures or whatever. And then they go back to their home. But for us, our home is the wilderness. So we are completely part of that. We are um, like another animal in a way. I'll go hunting. I'm like the tiger, right? Um, and so we eat the other animals like the tiger does and we eat the plants like the, the hare and the rabbits do and uh, we feel completely part of that and of course I'm not going to pollute the river that I'm drinking I won't be very stupid and of course um, I won't um, kill the last animal in that area I let them breed up, breed up because I'm going to come back next year maybe and so there's a natural conservation ethic in people who live in the land, what you will see the same with the Aborigines and the, the Bushmen, and yeah, mm-hmm. so it's a slightly different um, point of view there. Um, but what I am, <laughs> I don't know, another animal <laughs> amongst animal. Is, <laughs> is there a tension? Is there any tension for you in being a human element in a wilderness that you value for its wild value, for its for its wilderness values? By by being there, you're introducing a human element to that wilderness and therefore it is less wild. Do you, do you have any tension there? You mean what I'm adding to that whole environment by being human? Yeah, I guess that one quality of humans is the perception of beauty. That we sit down for an amazing sunset and um, maybe the, the animals see that too but I never sort of seen them really contemplative looking at it. <laughs> And so maybe that is a contribution, you know, the appreciation of beauty. Mm. Yeah, because that is actually our main incentive of living in the wilderness, to live in beauty, stunning, stunning beauty. One of the things I noticed about your book is that you don't actually name some of the locations. And I'm, I'm seeing a few people in this audience who probably would be able to take a punt at <laughs> some of the locations that you were in because they just know the backcountry so well. But... Um, is that, was that a deliberate decision on your behalf to protect the anonymity of some of those locations? Or is there another reason why you didn't name them? Yeah, so when I was writing the book, we had already received a Dutch television crew. And um, Dutch people have this habit of going en masse into these places. 
So I thought the worst thing that could happen is if I name some of these valleys and then have all these Dutch tourists, those loud Dutch tourists <laughs> walking around looking for these places. Uh, you know, that was the worst case scenario, but I didn't want to take the risk mm. of um, exposing that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a real tension for all of us these days. Yeah. Um, I guess we're rapidly running out of time. So in the last few minutes before we open it up to questions, I'm keen to explore a little bit about where to for you from since the time the book was published. So it, I think it was 2017 the book was published, and yep. at that time you guys had been living in the wilderness for approximately six years, and you'd walked to Araroa, and you'd lived in a batch somewhere on the west coast, and you'd been in various different valleys. Mm-hmm. Then what happened? Then you published the book, and then what happened? Uh, yeah, sort of fantastic contrast. Um, the book came out straight away, translated into Dutch because of this Dutch television crew that had come. So I was instantly famous back in Holland. And um, so they flew me to Holland, put me in a hotel, fancy hotel, drove around with limousines. Uh, this is going from the bush in a tent to this five-star hotel. And I thought, wow, what's happening? It's absolutely amazing. And uh, I love that contrast. So since then, we did a lot of television, including Ben Fogel in the UK. They'd like to um, come and film us in our tent. And um, so that's all great publicity for the book. So um, what I would hate is that mediocre life, so the sort of in the middle, the middle way. <laughs> no way for me. Um, so I like to live very primitively and, you know, very extreme or stay in the scenic hotel (laughs) (laughs) and being in this massive bed and have a hot shower. Um, So I like the the two extremes and um, that makes life very interesting and I find myself very lucky that I can experience this. And how did Peter find it suddenly to be in the spotlight? Well, a little bit less indeed. Um, (laughs) But he's also very excited yeah, he's, he's doing a lot of work into trying to get it into America and the book and in different uh, countries. And, um, yeah, we find it both very exciting. <laughs> Have you had much wilderness time since the book was published? Oh, yes. So after the book came out, uh, we went to France and we started walking there because we had just walked the Tiararoa Trail. That was 3,000 kilometers in New Zealand. And we thought, well, this is a fantastic way of life and a fantastic way of exploring a country. So we started walking in France, the E4 walkway, that led into Switzerland, into Austria and Germany. And then there was 1,000 kilometers. Then we took a bus to Bulgaria, and we walked another 1,000 kilometers in Bulgaria and Turkey. And um, so, yes, those, those ways of traveling are amazing. But um, we always want to come back to... New Zealand, because walking in New Zealand is so much easier. For a starter, I can hunt here, because I couldn't take my rifle to Europe. Um, So it gives so much more rest, because I can shoot an animal, and then we can rest and eat the animal for a week, and then we can continue walking. So um, New Zealand is, for us, a place to rest. Mm -hmm. And also the population in Europe is so much higher. It's obviously um, much more busy. So do you have ambitions for further particular types of trip in New Zealand or, um, or elsewhere? Or are you happy to think about, think about things for a while and, um, and, and sit, on, sit on the plans? Um, we have this uh, open door philosophy. 
So we don't really work on anything that is going to happen. We are happy if nothing happens. That's fine too. Or if someone suggests something. So if someone says, uh, would you like to go on a boat to Fiji or something? We say, yes, we go, because we have time. And, um, but we're not going to work on it. I'm not going to put out advertisement like, take me to Fiji. It could be somewhere else. Um, and so we just carefully wait to see what something happens. And always something happens. And somebody suggests something, a good idea or an, op- an, uh, an option or an, uh, an offer. <laughs> and this is a fantastic way to live if you dare to, to do nothing at times and to go with whatever comes. Mm. Yep. Well, it would be interesting to see what happens next. <laughs> 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 I think with that, um, it would be a great opportunity to throw it open to the audience. If there are any burning questions out there for Miriam, um, now is your opportunity to ask them. <laughs> Where I went? Oh, yeah, that was um, South Marlborough. But we went all over the place. So um, in one year, we had an old Jeep and an old um, Toyota Hilux, actually. And uh, we drove all up these valleys. One of the valleys we really liked was the Ahuriri Valley sort of near twice all that is. And we spent, um, you know, three months at a time there and, and discovered every mountaintop and go up and walk on waterfalls. And um, then the food was finished. We drove past the town, buy another three months' food and go up another valley. <laughs> so, um, but Ariri is one of our favourites. But I heard it's getting more busy now. <laughs> so I have to find something new, remote. <laughs> So just a question there for those on the other side of the room was um, how, how long you would stay in one place um, before moving on and whether you would set up a permanent camp. Yeah, it all depends what we do. So when we first set off, we wanted to do four seasons. So that's four places. So that's about three months in one place. Then we stayed one whole year in one little hut in Abel Tasman National Park. So it all depends what we're doing. We'd like to do every year something different. And in our last year, we walked the Tiaroa Trail, so that's sometimes one night in one place, sometimes one week. But it depends a little bit on food. So if you want to live in the wilderness, you have to be extremely well organized with food. You can't have this dream ideas of, oh, we're going to go into the wild. <laughs> um, you have to be very organized with food supplies and um, yeah, be very practical about it. I seem to remember one of my... one of the. The early stories in the, the book was you, you got to a campsite with your carefully prepared plan of burying your buckets. Yeah, of we, food. Thought, we thought we got food buckets, 12 of them, and we're going to put them in the ground. You'll think the same, wouldn't you? Put them in the ground so the rats wouldn't, buy, you know, rats wouldn't make holes and wouldn't get into it. But of course, it's totally impractical. It's only stones. There's no sand unless you're on <laughs> <in> the beach. <laughs> and we hadn't thought of that. Oh, God, of course. You can't bury a bucket in the ground. <laughs> So we just found a sort of a natural hollow and then put stones around it mm. and on top and moss and that, quite exposed, mm. but we were really lucky and no rat got in it. Mm. Miriam, I'm super curious. I, one of the things that I think I've said is remarkable about this book is the fact that you're, you're so honest and you're so honest particularly about your relationships with others in the book. And I'm, I'm wondering whether or not having the book being published did you have any negative reactions to any of it from people that you describe in the book or that you'd meet in the book? Or did you have anyone come out of, out, back, at, back at you from the book and say, Miriam, you got that fundamentally wrong? No, actually. No. 
<laughs> no, uh, no one commented on it. So she's referring to the fact that um, Peter and I, we like to be completely free. And uh, we don't possess each other. And so that also means that we got an open relationship. If I fall in love with someone else, um, I can have another relationship if I so want to. And Peter the same. So um, this happened, and I put this in the book. And uh, it's very strange. No one commented on it. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe I'm just shy. Yeah? New Zealanders, um, we're, so, we're so quiet about these things. <laughs> yeah, and any, not, uh, not to me, anyhow. Yeah. And the woman that you met in the, in the wilderness who was helicoptered out because she could no longer live there, did you ever oh, meet her again? Yes, I did. Yeah. So uh, in Abel Tasman National Park, we were living next to a lady very old, and she lived there her whole life. And to put in really as though it was 1900 with an old uh, wood stove. And if she'd light it up, the whole room would fill with smoke because um, that's the way it works. And then sort of the draw comes and then it works after a while. And, um, yeah, she came along because she had run out of matches. Run out of matches. <laughs> anyway, uh, I helped her a lot because she was obviously very old and needed help. Um, and on one day, she was gone. And I came in and sort of strangely quiet. I thought, oh, God, something happened. And I'll go and look around. Elizabeth was her name, Elizabeth. And um, she wasn't there. I waited on the veranda. You know, and this is a very, very quiet place. Um, it was on the Totranui Road, and the, and the road was destroyed that year. So that's 2012, I think it was, or 11. And so there was no traffic at all. This was really remote. And uh, turned out that this lady was flown out by a helicopter. Her family had taken her out because they thought um, she was too old to live there. Well, I didn't know. Um, and so for weeks we thought, well, what had happened with her? Uh, but later, much later, I found her again, and she was walking around in Stoke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, near Nelson. And, um, yeah, quite unhappy, but sort of resigned to the fact that she had to live in town. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so this lady asked, what do I do for money? Because I, um, I'm obviously not making much and not spending much. But, yeah, we could worry about money. But um, I had quite a lot of savings from teaching and from back in Holland. And so Peter also. So we're very conservative both. And we, live, we have quite a, quite a bit of savings, which we treat very carefully. So we live off the interest. I know the interest has gone down a bit. But um, we, in those years, we lived off the interest of the money. And if I could, I would go busking in the supermarket. And um, I, if I have a guitar, I busk, and I make quite a lot of money, actually, and, which go a very long way, because, as you say, there's not much to spend it on. Yeah, so that is great. And we learn to live very frugally, and, you know, when we see wild apples, we're obviously going to pick the apples <laughs> and those sort of things. Yeah. <laughs> Some tips to organize. Yeah, so you have to know exactly how much rice are you eating in one week. So that's sort of one cup, half a cup per person. So that's dinner then. So hopefully you're going to shoot a goat at some stage. And then you need to know how much oats are you eating and then how much flour to bake bread. So you have to calculate all that for one week and then times 52 or something, you know. So one time we had a helicopter. We, we met a guy who did possum hunting with his own helicopter in, in the mountains, and we thought this would be a really good friend to have. <laughs> 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 and he was sort of um, 
a little odd character, but we were very friendly. <laughs> and um, he helped us with, with food drops. So he said, give me your, um, all what you need for your next season, which was the summer, and I will take it into the mountains. And I calculated it was 150 kilos of food for three months. It's quite a lot, isn't it? And I said, um, Paul was his name. I said, Paul, I would really love to build my own hut in the mountains. And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to do that too. So um, he uh, flew in material, and he knew already a place. And so with the three of us, we built a little secret hut in the mountains, and it's still there. And he even flew in a firebox. So talking about open doors, all those things are coming when you wait long enough. And um, yeah, those things happened. So all these things are fantastic adventures. <laughs> oh, with books. Um, yes, so of course we could bring in very little. And uh, so you need a book that you can read endlessly and still not understand it, so you can start again. <laughs> One of that is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. So <laughs> the last couple of years we've been reading Friedrich Nietzsche extensively. <laughs> and this is great um, stuff for a conversation. So Peter and I will discuss all these... Um, um, eternal return and all those of concepts that come up if you read philosophy and before that we read a lot of uh, Krishnamurti uh, the ending of time for instance and uh, that makes it really interesting but if I am like I'm now here in the hotel and I have no time to read all that those dense philosophy because you need space and time to read that uh, and try to understand it so one of the things that is a real gift is that you have time for contemplation in the wilderness. And I think that's quite rare mm. in modern days. Okay, we'll take two more questions. Um, one here. No. No, <laughs> never fallen. Not yet. Not yet, no. And because we don't have a personal locator, be personal locator beacon and we don't wear boots but sandals, we go extremely slow. So we on Tiaroa, for example, other people walk Tiaroa in four months. We took ten months. <laughs> That's how slow we are. And uh, because we go very slow, we go very safely. And um, I see other people and I think, well, you're going to get an accident. They jump from stone to stone to keep their boots dry because they don't wear sandals. And I think, well, that slippery terrain. You could fall. Um, however... If I was without Peter um, and with someone else, as I was on my epic female expedition, which we don't have time to talk about anymore, <laughs> but you're going to see it all online, uh, in that case, we had a personal occasion beacon. Yeah. It's very hard to find edible plants in the alpine. So there's plenty to eat uh, on the lowlands, but in the alpine, it's mostly snowberries and totra berries. And in this right season, you can eat kilos of that. It's no problem. But otherwise, there is very little out there to eat. Just some herbs like um, broadleaf and, um, you know, things you can make tea with. doesn't really fill you up. So um, that is one thing we really miss after some time. And um, they're very hard to take. Sometimes you can, we manage to dry something and then bring that in. Um, but we always take vitamin C tablets, and uh, that seems to do the trick a little bit. 
But yeah, that's one downfall. But I do think that, you know, we eat the hair and the hair eat all the vegetables. <laughs> yeah, let's be miss that, yeah. The guts? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 indeed. I did, I did see um, a goose. I shot a goose last summer. And in the guts were all these snowberries. <laughs> they had just gobbled it up. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't know the goose would eat the snowberries. But um, we do eat every part of the animal. So that's one part of being very grateful of the, the life of the animal. We eat every part. That includes the brain, the heart, liver and kidneys, of course, the lungs as well. And uh, last summer we tried testicles. <laughs> and uh, my friend was saying, well, if you eat all the rest, you may as well eat testicles. So. Okay, so, uh, but all these things are very tasty, especially if you're so hungry and so much in need of all these nutrients. Mm. I don't think I'm going to be signing up to have possum testicles for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> You'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've very unfortunately come to the end of our hour with Miriam. Um, I'm sure if you guys have got any further questions, um, she'll be available outside the door for the next um, little while. Um, she's also more than willing to sign books um, and there are books for sale immediately outside the door. I don't know really what to say. I think that Miriam has entertained us very well for um, the last <laughs> hour. Um, thank you, Miriam, very much for making the journey down from Nelson. Um, a big thank you to NHNZ for sponsoring the session this afternoon and an enormous thank you. I think this is one of the last sessions um, of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. An enormous thank you to Claire and to Laura and to the broader team, many of whom are present here today for, I think, what has been an enormously successful um, and very diverse festival um, that Dunedin and, our re and its residents have benefited from greatly. So thank you very much to all of those people. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. <laughs>